Well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. We're going to meditate on the first four verses today. Take the rest next week, but let me read all of them. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Why are you anxious? Why do you continually scroll through your phone looking for something that you know not what? Almost, nerv almost nervously. And the thought comes to your mind, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why do we eat when we're not hungry? Why do we spend money that we do not have? Why do we spend, or our, why do we always set our hearts on our next vacation when responsibility has filled our lap today? Why do we spend 30 minutes looking for a show or movie to entertain us for the next hour or two? Why do we secretly drink? Why do you secretly look at porn or read romance novels? Why do you love gossip? Why do you love reading about it? Why do you neglect the people that love you just to make a little bit more money? Why do you bite your nails? Why do you twirl your, ha your hair? And why do you find yourself distracted as the people who love you most try to engage you? Why do you say no to fellowship? Why do you not ask good questions to engage other people's hearts? Why are you not creative and intentional in your relationships? Why are you not fun? Why does your heart seem so dull and your affections seem so weak? Well, I may have missed some of you there, 
But for the rest of us, who many of the things on that list maybe hit way too close to home in describing our lives to our own shame, if we're honest, if we look in, if we were to let the light shine into our lives, this describes so many of our lives, and it stems from one major problem. And that is that we are not rooted and grounded in love. All those things I just shared are symptoms of a problem of a heart that is not rooted or grounded in love. For to be grounded is to be secure. It's to be steady, to be at peace, to be able to withstand adversity. You think of a tree that is rooted and grounded when the winds come. It's able to know how to handle tragedy and death and sickness, conflict. Being grounded in love knows how to handle conflict and relationship. Abuse, addiction. To be grounded is to not be tricked by deceivers. It's to know who you are. It's to know what you are. It's to know where you are. It's to know what to do. And Paul wants you to be grounded in love so that you may love. Paul has already displayed, explained to us what God has done in creating a new creation that began in our election before the foundation of the earth, our calling that brought us our new birth, the provision of our redemption in Christ. Remember the type of grace Christ redeemed us with in chapter 1? It was according to the riches of His grace. You're not given grace out of his riches, but according to it, which means his grace goes above all sin. And how were his workmanship? We're a new creation. We were dead, but we were brought to life. And when we were brought to life, we were gathered together into one people built upon the apostles and prophets that we would be a dwelling place for God. All that was to tell us who we are, what God has done for us, and now he's transitioning. Now he wants us to use the power that we have access to Use and live out of our new life 
in Christ. That whole long list that can describe our lives. How can we be changed? Paul's going to show us it requires prayer. It requires power. It requires power to put this down. It requires power to be secure in the midst of circumstances that throw us off when the trials come. And it requires preparation. And the preparation is for Christ to sit down in our hearts so that we could say with the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4.8, listen to this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So when Christ sits down in our hearts, we're actually able we actually have power over our flesh to put the, to death the deeds of the flesh, to experience the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. John has told us there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. How much of that list could all be summed up to fear. All those things we do that are destructive, that ruin our relationships, all the selfish things we do, tied back to fear. But here, John 4.18, we're told, our first John 4.18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So, in the words of John, little flock, do not be afraid. What is before us what we're going to look at next week, we're going to look at the love of Christ. This week, we're going to look at the process for Christ to sit down so that we could comprehend his love. But there is love vast as the ocean, as we sang about. Love beyond what we can imagine. And it begins... In verse 14 with Paul's second prayer. Paul's first prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18 was that we could know the power 
of Christ for us, that we would know it, that we could comprehend the type of power that raised Jesus from the dead, that seated him at the right hand of God, that brought us from death to life, and that when we're brought from death to life, we're seated with Christ at the right hand of God. That power. Now he wants us to use that power to not only know it, but that it would ground us so that we can love. That's the purpose of your life, of your new birth, that all things will culminate with the love of Christ flowing out of you to his glory. And so he begins in prayer, his, his, his second prayer. He says, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in earth is named. He's not prescribing that we need to bow down when we pray. All throughout the scripture, we see people standing and praying. David sat and prayed. You don't have to pray in any particular position. Bowing before him is to show earnestness. Christ fell on his face when he prayed in the garden. What we're to see here is the apostle's heart for the believers and his need of God to do the work in their lives that needs to be done. And so he bows his knees before the Father it's, it's interesting, almost every prayer Paul has recorded in the Scripture is for the spiritual well-being of other believers. When Paul prays, he prays for the spiritual well-being of other believers. It's no different here. As long as it's, I was going to cut this out, but as long as it's Reformation Day. Is it Reformation Day today? Tomorrow? Okay, well, I heard uh, Scott talking about Luther in Sunday school this morning, so I'll give you my short little snippet here. In 1540, Luther's good friend and assistant, Frederick uh, Myconius, uh, became very ill to the point of death. And he sent letter to Luther, and he gave, basically gave his farewells and his love for Luther. And then Luther sent a letter back, and in true Luther form, it was, this is what he said. He says, I command thee in the name of God to live, because I still have need of thee in thy work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that thou art dead, but will per permit thee to survive. For I am praying, this is my will, and that my will be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God. So Luther says, no, I'm praying you don't die. You can't die. You pray for me. You encourage me. Not till I die can you die. Well, God answered that prayer. Although when he sent the letter off, the man couldn't even speak. He was so close to death. 
He lived six more years and outlived Luther by two months. And so after Paul has planted all these seeds of what God has done for us in Christ in the first two and a half chapters, now, I should say, yeah, two and a half chapters, now what he does is he waters all that knowledge that he gave them with prayer. He's praying that spiritual strength gives life. See, the Christian life is not merely knowing, but it's believing, and to believe, it takes spiritual strength. And so he prays. I just want to make note, he says he bows his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That means the saints that have gone before and the saints that are on earth. The saints that are triumphant in heaven and the saints that are militant on earth in their fight against sin in their own hearts. So he prays to the Father. I just have to share with you a quote from John MacArthur on God being our heavenly Father. He, because when we pray, I think we often forget this. We often miss this. Here's what he says. Because God is our heavenly father, we do not come to him in fear and trembling, afraid that he'll rebuff us or be indifferent. We do not come to God to appease him as the pagans do to their deities. We come to a tender, loving, concerned, compassionate, accepting father. A loving human father always accepts the advances of his children, even when they've been disobedient or ungrateful. How much more does our heavenly father accept his children, regardless of what they have done or have not done? Paul approaches the father with boldness, boldness and confidence knowing that he is more willing for his children to come to him than they are ever of going to him. He knows that God has been waiting all the while with the Father's heart of love and anticipation. That's why in a moment, Paul's going to try to, next week we're going to look at, try to convince us of, of love that has no bounds. Because we imagine when we pray to God, that we've exhausted his patience. Our sin has exhausted the heights uh, that his grace can go to. And it's just not true. And you'll be biting your fingernails, and you'll be fearing man, and you'll be looking for cheap escapes, whether it's through pornography, alcohol, addiction of spending money, overeating, you, you fill in the blank. But Paul prays to the Father. And then it says in verse 16, what's he praying about? That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power 
So now he's not praying that we know about the power. He's praying that we be strengthened with that power that he's already revealed to us in his first prayer in chapter 1. That we be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The Christian life cannot be lived in your own power. So why do you try to do it that way? You see, you weren't brought to spiritual life to then live in the strength of your own flesh. So why do we do it like that? Why do we do it by our own strength and in our own power? And we only go to God, we only pray when, when it's last resorts. He's praying that according to the riches of his glory, okay, once again, not that we be given power out of the glory of God, but according to it, which means it's beyond what our minds can fathom. There's power that a Christian has access to in the spirit that is beyond what you can imagine. That whole long list does not need to enslave you. You can be changed. You can be different. And you can't do it in your own strength. You can only do it by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit. And it begins by realizing you can't do it and you need to pray. You need to pray for one another. We need to be praying for each other. Thank God Luther's friend had a friend like Luther that interceded so that he can intercede back so that the Reformation can happen. You see, we live our life by powers. And, and so he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. At the end of this text, uh, we saw that he says, um, let's see him. In verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. You see, we limit ourselves because we only think in our own strength, in our own wisdom. We say things like, I tried to kick that habit for 20 years, and I can't do it. Well, of course you can't do it. You can't do it. But the Spirit can do it in your life. And then he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what does it look like to be strengthened in our inner being? That's in your soul. To be strengthened in your inner being is to have Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. To have Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. That's why Paul can say things like this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, 
Our inward self is being renewed day by day. Paul, your life is going to shambles. You're going from prison to prison, from stoning to beating to lashes. What's come of your life? Outwardly, I'm wasting away, but inwardly, I'm being renewed day by day. So I'm not losing heart. So I'm not losing heart. And if you're losing heart, it's because you're not being renewed in the knowledge of Christ, in the knowledge of what Christ has done for you on the cross. The love of Christ is manifest most clearly as Jesus Christ dies in the stead place of sinners, takes on the wrath of God in their place and gives them his righteousness and an eternal inheritance. So what does it mean to dwell in your hearts through faith? That word dwell, katokeo, means to settle down somewhere. Uh, Hanley Mole says it refers to to the permanent as opposed to a temporary abode. It's used metaphorically for both the fullness of the Godhead abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in the believer's heart. And so he draws out the implication. It's, a, it, it's the word that expressly denotes residency as opposed to lodging. So I want you to imagine for a moment a king that is coming through your area and he wants to come to your home. And, and imagine if a king was coming to your home, how you might prepare for him, how you might get the guest bedroom. You, you might even give up the master bedroom if the king's coming. You go sleep on the floor somewhere. You know, we're going to get out the best dishes. We're going we're, we're, we're gonna to lay it out for the one who has such authority that's going to come and, and stay at your house. But imagine if a person had a king come and they walked in and they didn't grab his coat. They didn't orient him to the house. He said, you can go sleep on the couch downstairs. I didn't get anything ready, but in the bin there's some blankets. Go for it. Go, Go help yourself. You know, we might order some pizza or something. You know, we might treat a homeless person like that if they came into came to stay at our house, but you're not going to treat a king that way. And yet Christ is the one who has all authority. And he comes to dwell in your house. But he wants it to feel like home. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Have you ever had someone come into your own home and you lose all authority? They take over the house and what's going on there? And is and everyone's kind of on eggshells until that ends. Parents, you can do that. Right? Nobody likes to feel not at home. 
You feel not at home when your authority is usurped. And yet, how often does Christ come into our lives and we don't submit to the leading of the Spirit? We don't submit to Him as King. And so, as Christ comes, it's just like a lodging place. He doesn't feel at home there. And yet, He's meant to dwell in our hearts. Paul could have used another word, that he comes to visit. This isn't speaking of that Christ comes and then leaves. It's a question of how comfortable. If If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is living inside you, and you can quench him. You can treat him terribly. And the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And this Spirit of Christ wants to prepare our hearts so that Christ can sit down in our hearts. And so the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. He feels, to whatever degree, hopefully more and more comfortable living inside our hearts. Now there's a booklet by Robert Munger that that MacArthur points out. Uh, that gives an illustration of this, that pictures the Christian life as a house, a place for Christ to dwell. And and here's what he writes. Uh, that That Jesus comes into our life and goes from room to room. In the library, which is the mind, Jesus finds all the trash and all the sorts of worth, worth, worthless things. Or he finds trash and all sorts of worthless things. And he proceeds to throw out and replace it with his word. In the dining room, he finds the appetites of, of sinful desires that is on our worldly menu. In the place of such thing things as prestige and materialism and lust. He puts humility, meekness, and love in all other virtues for which believers are to hunger and thirst. He goes through the living room of fellowship where he finds many worldly companions and activities. Through the workshop where only toys are being made and into the closet where hidden sins are kept and, and so on through the entire house. Only when he has cleaned every room and closet and corner of sin and foolishness could he settle down and be at home. And the idea is the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our hearts. Why is the Spirit doing that work? Well, you and I are a dwelling place for God. We want Christ to sit down and be at home in our hearts. And he is a king. And it's only when he's treated as a king. He is worthy. It's only when he's treated as worthy that he can settle down. And until that time, the spirit will be working. In John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and he'll come to him, and, and, our, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Let me read that again. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we'll come to him, and we'll make our abode with him. We'll make our home with him. This is what Paul's praying for. He's praying that Christians will walk with the Spirit. If they're going to get spiritual power, they need to walk with the Spirit. Why? So Christ can settle down in their hearts. How do you walk with the Spirit? You follow His every word. Where's His words? His words are in the Scripture. All those reasons why we're unsettled and chasing after all these other things is because what's filling our minds is not what the Spirit is showing us. But we're trying to find counterfeit security, quick security in places that can never deliver it. And notice that he says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, Christ doesn't sit down by you merely being able to answer a question on a test. Yeah, I know the right answer to that. Yeah, well, Christ sits down when you believe it, when you're clinging to it, when your hands are on it, and you're saying, that's true for me today, right now, this minute, the next hour I'm clinging to it, and then the next hour when I don't cling to it, I come back to the thing that I know, and I cling to it. You see, that's all biblical discipleship is. It's reminding each other of what God has done for us in Christ and what God has given us in his word. And then we exhort one another to believe it, to believe it. This is good news because so many of you are out there and you're thinking, well, I know this stuff, but my life isn't changing. Yeah, but it's not like your life isn't changing because you're not walking with the spirit and you're not walking with the spirit because you're not in the word. You're not living off every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when you start living off every word that comes from the mouth of God, then it's as though Christ is sitting here. His love and grace is so much bigger. And all of a sudden you start to feel secured and you start to feel grounded and you start to remember who you are and what your purpose is. It's by faith. If, you've, if I've said it one time, I've said it a thousand times. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. By faith in what, Paul? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He knew the love of Christ. And every day, though he be a murderer and a Christian killer, every day he lived by faith that Christ's love goes higher than his sin, goes beyond all the reasons why he can imagine himself to be rejected. By faith, by faith, it seems so fundamental, and yet we forget it. 
I lived so much of my Christian life and I thought that Scripture is just supposed to work when it gets in my head and I didn't realize that Paul called faith the fight of faith and like running the race, finishing the race. Races are hard. Fights are difficult. And Paul's praying that they walk with the Spirit so that they have spiritual power. You see, when you sit there and you say, I'll never change. I'll never quit looking at pornography. uh, My phone's always going to dominate me. I'm always going to be a workaholic. I'm always going to be an alcoholic. I'm always going to this. I'm always, is that not the opposite of what Christ has said about you? That your salvation started before the foundations of the earth? He predestined you for what? To be conformed to the image of Christ. That you no longer are a slave to sin, but that you can put to death sin by the power of the Spirit. You see, it's always good news for me when I get down in a rut and, and I know I'm far from God. Once I realize this, I can always see how. Faith in God's word, active faith in God's word is missing every time. And that's good news. It's not just like I'm resigned forever to not grow and to be changed. And so Christ sits down in our hearts as we believe in him as we walk with the Spirit, Spirit's words. And then he says, being grounded in love. You see, for Christ to sit down in your hearts is to be grounded. Being grounded in love. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Love, And then next week he's going to say, when you're rooted and grounded in love, then you're able to comprehend more love. And then the whole rest of the letter is going to be how we're to overflow with love to others. You see, it's like a cup that the more you look at Christ and the fact that his love is inexhaustible, his his riches have no end, (laughs) He loved you when you were still a sinner. He died for you when he knew every sin you have done and will do. With knowledge, he died for you. Isaiah 53, 12. He didn't go there and say, wow, I, didn't, I died for sinners. I didn't know they were going to do that. It's with knowledge he died for you. It's when we know that is when we are grounded, and, and, and now we're secure, and now, look, you don't have to be selfish anymore. You don't have to be entertained to death. You don't need people to say good things. You don't have to go on the internet and try to get fish for compliments. <laughs> you don't have to just satisfy your every fleshly desire because your Father loves you. And Christ dwells in you. And the Spirit lives in you. You see, and and now, what are you unlocked to do? You're you're unlocked to 
overflow with the fullness of God. That's where this text is going. When we're filled with the unknowable love of God, what do we have? We have overflow of love to then fulfill all that Paul incurred, is charging Christians to do through the rest of this letter. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is it with this new creation? What is, what, what is it? What, what's the end? Well, I have a new commandment. You love just as I've loved you. You don't just love your neighbor as you love yourself. You overflow with that same love. And so I don't know how the enemy has been attacking your mind and what's been filling up your living room or your library of thoughts, but I commend to you Christ. Because if you make him your study, and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go after how much his love is, how high his love is, how deep his love is, how broad his love is. I'm telling you, 20 gazillion years in heaven, we haven't got to the end of the love of Christ so that we can look back on it and say, oh, that's what it's like. But what better to fill your hearts with than to look squarely at the face of Christ, to see his love for you. You see, you don't not do those other things because those are bad moral things to do. They're like, they're like against the rules, breaking the rules. We gotta be good people. It's when you look at the love of Christ that you say, you know what, I want Christ to fill this spot in my life. I don't want counterfeit. I don't want counterfeit. He's worthy to sit down in my heart. 